Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm excited to have Matilde Cullen, CEO of Front, on the podcast. Front is a shared inbox for your team. They're used by startups big and small and raised a whopping $66 million from Sequoia last year. Matilda and I actually met a while ago back in Y Combinator. We were in the same batch in summer 2014, and back then I recognized something really special about her and the team. They build fast, they embrace a transparent culture, and those two qualities have certainly led to some of their success. On the podcast, we discuss how she manages company culture at a fast-growing startup, her journey moving to San Francisco from France, why email is not dead, and products she uses to stay sane and productive. But before I jump in, I want to give a shout out to her sponsors. If you're a writer, graphics designer, painter, musician, or some other breed of creative, your job is to turn ideas into products for your customers. Unfortunately, menial tasks like invoicing and expenses can steal time away from your creative process. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software for creative professionals is the solution. It basically has no learning curve and on average saves users up to 192 hours a year. Set up your accounts and start invoicing in just minutes, track expenses and take photos of receipts with the mobile app, track time to record every billable hour, and automation is built in to save you even more time. Right now, get a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash product hunt and enter product hunt radio in the how did you hear about us section. The sexual wellness space is booming, but most innovation and investment has been focused on the body rather than the brain. Dipsy is changing that by taking a mind-first approach to female sexuality with an app for short, sexy audio stories, which makes sense considering 90% of women use mental framing to get turned on. The bite-sized audio stories are perfect for solo or couples, listening to set the mood, spark your imagination, and start intimate conversation. Head to dipsystories.com slash product hunt, that's D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash product hunt to download the iOS app. The first few stories are free. Introducing Meet, a new, incredibly easy-to-use video conferencing tool designed for small businesses. Featuring HD video and crystal clear audio, Meet just works. Join video conferencing in seconds with no download required, and you'll get unlimited meetings, unlimited recordings for only $11.99 a month. Secure and reliable with access from anywhere that you have an internet connection or phone connection. You're able to simply meet. Learn more at Spoka.com, that's spelled S-P-O-K-A, and sign up for a free 30-day trial. Hey, Matilde. Thanks for coming on. Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we met back at YC. How have you been? Yeah. It's been four and a half years, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, For those that don't know, uh, we were at the same YC batch, summer 2014. And I was actually reflecting the other day. I was, I was kind of admiring your hustle. I remember observing your early hustle in the beginning. Because you were doing all these different experiments and like building the very beginnings of Front back then, and now now you've you know grown quite a bit. I think you're actually first. Can you talk more about Front for those that aren't maybe familiar with with Front and maybe yourself? Yeah, of course. So um, I started this, this company called Front five years ago, and what we're doing is we're reinventing email uh, for the way teams work. So what it means is we're building an inbox, and we add collaboration, workflows, accountability, transparency, so that any knowledge worker in the world can be more efficient when they work. So that's what we're doing. And I think it's actually five years ago, I went through YC and we launched the product when we were in YC. And 
that's when I met Ryan. But but I thought email is dead. No one uses email, right? Do you really believe that though? No. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, no, I don't believe that. So actually, I think there is a difference between business email and personal email. So I could be on board with saying that personal email will die and, you know, will be replaced by things like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and other Instagram and others. But if you look at business email, they just keep growing year over year. And I don't think that's going to change. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in our inboxes, you know, as much as people like to say Slack has, has killed email, they don't really truly mean that. It's kind of very much a, a hyperbole. Yeah, for sure. communications. And you know who was uh, one of our first angel investors was the CEO of Slack. So I think if he really believed that email was dead, maybe he would have not invested in an email company. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So if you could summarize the past five years or, or since YC, give people the highlights. You've, uh, I think Sequoia led your, your latest round. How many people do you have at the company? now? Yeah, sure. So um, summary of the past five years, I started the company in Paris. Six months after I started, I moved the team to San Francisco for YC. And then we decided to stay in San Francisco. And then a year and a half after YC, we raised our Series A when we were at about, I don't know, maybe a thousand customers and one million in AR. And then 18 months after that, we raised our Series B. So we raised $66 million with Sequoia. And then a few months after, we decided to open an office in Paris. So at the beginning of 2018, that's what we did. And my co-founder went back to Paris to manage the office there. And today we have 110 people in the team and we have about 4,700 paying customers and we're both in Paris and San Francisco. Wow. That's a lot of people. Uh, the, yeah. Well, I mean, relatively speaking, the, the product hunt team, we've always kind of been around for the, the last several years, been around roughly 20 people or so. And it's a good size. We can get a lot done with 20 people. But when, when you get to 100 people, that's like a whole other level of scale You know that most startup founders have not seen. How have you managed that? How have you also grown? Because this... Is this your first company that you started or have you have you had other companies in the past? No, so it's, um, it's my first company. Before before doing Front, I worked for one year in a startup, but that's the extent of my work experience. So really, it's the first time I'm building a company and pretty much the first time I'm actually working. So I'm figuring out everything as I'm doing it. And, you know, it's funny because on, on the topic of 100 employees, Every founder I've talked to tells me that, you know, one day you realize that the company that you're managing, because it has uh, reached a certain size, really feels very different from the early days when you were 20. And the truth is, I still haven't felt that way. Like, I still know every person in the team. I still feel like, you know, communication is happening and everyone knows what's happening at front. And so maybe I will, you know, a year from now when we have a, another conversation, maybe I will say something different. But even if, of course, things have changed, they don't seem radically different to me. Yeah. How have you managed now that you kind of have you have two offices? That's I've actually worked at previous companies that have multiple offices, multiple headquarters. And I saw some challenges with that where you had sort of two different cultures emerge and different ways of communicating across. It, it, at the time, I was in Portland and Vegas. And that was a really a very difficult thing and in some ways harder than, than building and operating a fully distributed team. How have you managed that with the Paris location and San Francisco location? 
So I think there are two kinds of things we do. One is what do we do at a company level so that everyone is on the same page? And then two is what do we do specifically with the Paris office so that we don't create two different cultures? So I can talk about both. Just specific to Paris, the first thing is anytime someone joins the Paris team, they start by coming a few weeks to San Francisco. So we make sure that, you know, they know everything, everyone. And two, we do company offsites at least once a year, and everyone is flying to wherever the offsite is happening. And so then we make sure that the teams are spending time together. Three, usually in Paris, there is always at least one person from the SF office so that we make sure that the culture is the same. So that's what we do specifically for, for Paris. And then at a company level, we make sure that we're a very transparent company. So one, everyone knows everything about the business. Two, Everyone knows everything about our values and what they mean. And these values are the same in SF and in Paris. I don't know if you, if you saw, I, we actually published a culture book where we explain exactly what it means to have a value like transparency, low ego, high standards. And by giving super concrete examples, then we can make sure that people are living the values in the same way. So I guess, and also obviously we're using this wonderful tool called Front that helps us be on the same page. And that's why communication flows really well between two offices. How do you interview or test for culture? Because that's always a hard thing is when you're meeting someone for the first time and you you might speak with them for 30 or 60 minutes, how do you make sure that they kind of qualify or, or, or match the culture that you're trying to build? It's a good question. So first of all, I think that you know the way you can scale that is just making sure that everyone you hire leaves the values the way you mean them. And then these people will interview other people. I have specific questions for each value. So I can give you one example. One of the questions that I like to ask because I want to uh, know if people are low ego is, um, so let's say you are interviewing for a product manager position and I will ask you on a scale from zero to 10, zero being you don't know anything about product management and 10 is the best product manager you can ever be. So surrounded by the best people in the you know, best environment. And so you, you fulfill your f- full potential. Where are you at right now on a scale from zero to 10? So I could, I could have asked you this question, right? But <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm asking this question is because I don't want people to tell me anything higher than, you know, six or seven, because what I want to ask is really, what's your potential? Like, do you think you can be 10 times better than what you are? Do you think you can be 10% better? And usually if some people don't listen to the question really well and are really willing to tell me that they're really great. And so therefore we'll give a high number versus like, if you're really great and you really have a ton of potential, then you're comfortable saying a low number. So that's one example, but we overall, we just share examples of questions that can test for different values. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And we all, we can all learn more. And I think the most experienced people start to understand and identify there are things that we don't know we don't know in every function. And when I think about myself, my background is in product management. And, um, you know, I've gotten much, much, much better than I was before, but I could also be much, much, much better in the future. And so I, I like that. That's an interesting question. I agree. I think there are a few misconceptions about more senior people, one of them being they, they know everything. But another one is also that I've realized is you tend to think that because people are more senior, they shouldn't be as hands-on. And the truth is, you know, when you join a company, 
as senior as you are, the main thing that you should do when you join is being super, super hands-on. So you're a sales leader, you will sell the product. You're an engineering leader, you will actually either code or run with a project. And you should always look for people that are mature enough that they understand that they'll have to be hands-on in order to be the best version of themselves. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually give the example of my father. So my my parents started, they've been working as entrepreneurs together uh, for a while and they, they started this company and part of the, the operations of the business are actually getting into pulling out recycling of garbage cans. And in the beginning, my dad spent the first, uh, I don't know how many weeks getting into garbage cans. You know, he's at the time was, what was he, mid 40s, early 50s. And so he's getting into garbage cans and pulling out recycling and, you know, not, not the most fun job, but for him, it was super important to fully understand what it was like to operate, you know, what his employees and team would have to do and really fully understand the business. And so, you know, if, if you think, I think going to the more software kind of startup world, if you think you're too, too good to write code or too good to do sales, like, I don't know, think about my father jumping into garbage bins. <laughs> like, right. That's a really good example. And, and I think it's, you know, it applies for leaders, but, but one lesson that I learned, not even for leaders, but for our first employees is as a founder, you should probably do all these jobs first before hiring for people. And one example of a mistake I've done when uh, we were super early is, uh, hiring for marketing. So I thought, you know, I don't know much about marketing. I don't really know how we'll generate more awareness and more leads to front. And therefore, I will just hire someone that will figure it out. And I tried to figure it out myself and I couldn't figure anything out. So I decided to hire. And then I had a super hard time hiring because I didn't really know what I was looking for. And so I made two hires, didn't work out. And then I changed my strategy. I felt like, you know, for the things that I knew were working. So for example, I was selling the product and I was successful selling the product. So I hired an account executive and he did the job and he did the job really well. And that freed up some time so that I could figure out marketing. And then I realized that in marketing, there are some things that were working. So for example, co-marketing was working really well because we integrate with some products and so we can co-market the product. So I decided to hire a partner marketing manager and I knew that it was working. And I think it's a, I, I, that's just my experience and, you know, it's my only company, so this is what it is. But uh, I've really learned that you need to do the job first before hiring someone, so that you know exactly what you're looking for, and this person is set up for success. Yeah, I, I find that in startups, a lot of what what we try to do is basically try a lot of things, experiment a lot, and do it fast. And then once you find something that works, just do more of it. And so, going back to your point about you, you found some marketing tactics that worked, and then you hired someone to do it and do more of it. And something that we've seen at Product Hunt too, where we try a lot of things, some of it doesn't work, some of it does, and then the things that have worked, we just double down on it and try to get it to scale to some some sort of well, as far as it can, really. How do you think about uh, whether it's marketing initiatives or product? Like, how do you how do you prioritize, or how do you think about roadmap and and where you dedicate your focus? Yeah, it's a, it's a broad question. So I can tell you more about product and, and because I think product and marketing have different answers to this question. So one on product, I feel like whatever we're building is a combination of two things. We make reasonable choices. So I'm sure you know, but uh, we have this roadmap that's public. So if you go on frontup.com slash roadmap, you can see everything that we're working on. 
everything that we are going to work on. And uh, people can vote for the features that they want to see. We also, through France, receive a ton of feature requests that we tag. And so then we have analytics about what people want. And so there is a reasonable aspect of our product roadmap, which is like, what do our customers want? And so we build that. But then there is an unreasonable part of our product roadmap, which is what do we think our customers want, but they don't know yet. And one of the things that we've done is being very deliberate at the beginning of every month or every quarter, depending on how you plan on the percentage of time that you will allocate to reasonable uh, decisions and the percentage of time that you will allocate to unreasonable decisions. And at French, it's pretty much been 50-50, and I've really enjoyed doing this. From a marketing standpoint, I think what you said is completely true. So we just keep doing things and keep launching net new strategies that you know can work or cannot work. The thing that I've realized is it's super important that you hire people in your team that are confident enough that they won't care if something doesn't work. Because the biggest mistake you can make is, you know, not acknowledging that something is not working and so then keeping doing this. It's tough because, you know, you work for a few weeks, a few months on something and then it leads to no result and everyone in the company knows about it because we share our numbers. And self-confidence is actually something that I've been looking for in most hires we've made because that's how you will keep iterating and just doubling down on what works and stop doing what doesn't work. The no-code space has matured quite a ton since I was a kid. I actually built my first website using Dreamweaver. Nowadays, you can build advanced web apps without writing code using Bubble. Bubble launched on Product Hunt back in 2015. Now more than 250,000 makers and companies have used Bubble to build marketplaces, social networks, CRMs, and more inside their browser. Check it out at bubble.is slash product hunt to get started for free. Going along with that, we've we've done things at Product Hunt where we launch something and it doesn't immediately take off. It doesn't work on day one. And we have a roadmap and we keep building on it. And at some point, we hope that the product will iterate into a, a place where it will start working and it'll start being meaningful. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's a this ongoing project that never really takes off. And how do you decide what when to kill a particular project or or move on to something different? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think one is, you know, whenever we ship anything, we never do these big projects where it takes months to create something and then we ship it and then we see if it works. Instead, we try to ship like super small things. And so we try to split the project into lots of different pieces so that at every step of the way we can assess if it's leading to any result. And it's really hard to do that because, you know, the wow effect that you would uh, have if you launch this brand new product or brand new feature, like it's much bigger. And so you're always tempted to to raise these things, but that's not how we've done it at front. And we same thing when we interview, we make sure that People are confident enough that they will be happy to ship like a super small thing and yet still be proud because they know that it's one step towards a bigger goal. So that's one thing we've done. Two is overall, I think we've been pretty bad at uh, removing features and we've been very good at adding features, which is not always a good thing. So one thing that I've forced the product team to do is every month we're you know, talking about the product roadmap and talking about what are we going to add. And I also really want them to think about what are we going to remove. And then, you know, you can look at the data and see that, of course, like it won't ever be 
people are using it. But when it's not that much, then you should understand the cost of keeping something that doesn't work or just take off. Yeah, we. <laughs> I think that's a very common problem. We we have features and things that are being used by some people. It's not like yeah. nobody uses it, but it's not necessarily meaningful. And if we killed it, you know, most people probably wouldn't wouldn't really notice or care all that much. It's a hard thing. It's hard to kill your, well, this is, this is a terrible metaphor, but hard to kill your baby because <laughs> everything you build yeah. and put effort into, it feels like your baby and, and you really want it to succeed. Yeah, for sure. But that's why I think the discipline around, you know, asking yourself this question on monthly basis or whatever works for your company is a, is a really good thing because otherwise you will never do it. Do you use OKRs or, or any of those type of processes to align projects and goals? Yes, we do. So we started last year. So we didn't, we didn't do it before that. But one thing that I've realized as the company is growing is there are a few things that need to be super clear in the company. One is the vision needs to be super clear to everyone. Two is how we get there and what's the strategy needs to be super clear. You know, I re-explain it at every, we have a quarterly all hands called last quarter at France and I re-explain it. And when at a weekly all hands, a question has been asked in the Q&A and is related to the strategy or the vision, then I restate it. So that's something that we need to do. And then uh, once you have your strategy to get there, you need to make sure that what you're working on this quarter is related to uh, the strategy. And actually, one of the things I've realized is people seem to be pretty happy at front. And I've tried to understand why. And so I asked them, like, why are you happy? And the most frequent answer was, the fact that they understand how their work relates to the bigger vision that we have. And I think that's when having a very clear strategy is important. And OKRs are a good way to, you know, transform this strategy into this quarter. What are we going to achieve? And then once you have your company OKRs, then every team has his team or her team OKRs. And then every person has personal OKRs. So. We do that, and I like it. And every week we give visibility on how we're tracking against against them. Yeah, I think what I've noticed and found too is the people who are, are most capable, most motivated, desire and thirst to make an impact in a company. And if those people especially aren't feeling that their contributions are meaningful or contributing to the bottom line, they're far less motivated. Like I certainly am. If, if I didn't think what, what we were doing at Product Hunt or what I particularly was working on was was important or or had value in the company of course i wouldn't i wouldn't feel that motivated to wake up in the morning and and really push hard no i agree I, yeah I, I think it's important there is also one thing i've realized in the past few months that i didn't realize before on like different types of people in in your company i feel like there are two types of people there are people that join the company because it's most likely going to be a successful company and there are people that join your company to make it successful and this is so different. And then the impact of, you know, the people one and people two is radically different. And so as much as you can, you should try to understand if the person is joining because, you know, they want to be part of the adventure or because they want to build this adventure. Yeah. Yeah. That's also something that higher profile companies face is they, it's, it's sort of a champagne problem. So when we post a job opening, we get hundreds of, of applicants for pretty much any role. And that's great. It means we can reach out and speak with a lot of awesome people. 
But then it also makes it much harder to filter through who are the people who are actually motivated, motivated to work on the problem and, you know, a good culture fit for us versus the ones who just want to put product on their resume and, and sort of logo collect. I'm sure front you've experienced the same thing, especially after, you know, having lots of success in, in Sequoia led round and things like that probably attract more people like that, I would imagine. Yeah, but that's why during, you know, during interviews, you need to be super deep, like versus being very broad and, and cover a lot of things, just dig into one thing and understand exactly the contribution of someone at a company, their motivation behind what they're doing. And if you dig super, super deep, then I feel like you'll filter a lot of people out. Yeah. So I asked on Twitter yesterday if people had questions for you. And I, I wanted to pull out Brett Burson from, from First Round. He asked, what's the most common startup advice you found to be wrong? Are there any kind of contradictory pieces of advice that you see that, that you feel differently about? Yeah. It's funny that you asked this question because I actually looked at the questions and I felt like I had an answer <laughs> to all of them except for this one. But I then thought about it. I think one that I tend to disagree with that you, know, you read a lot is fake it until you make it. There are so many things that you can't fake. Like, so, you know, I, I talked about having a clear path to whatever your mission is to making sure that you truly live your values and they're not just, you know, words on a wall or somewhere. Honesty and transparency and is something that I've always believed so much in and I think has contributed to our success so much that I don't really agree with that one. Yeah, it's a dangerous one, uh, especially in certain industries and businesses. You, um, you know, we're seeing some of that kind of play out. I think in, in certain companies, um, perhaps Theranos being one of the most high-profile <laughs> illustrations of that. So, a couple other questions from from Twitter, actually, because uh, Jason Jason Lemkin also had like, what's changed at Front since Demo Day? Which I know this is a very broad question, but you know, you've grown, you've you've you know raised money. What, what's been kind of the biggest change, maybe for you personally? Yes. So I would say for me personally, two things. One is my job has changed. So published, you know, it's, it was also one of the questions, but I published how I spend my time. And you know, I went from being an IC and doing all the jobs to, you know, being the head of every function to hiring the heads of every function. And so now my job is to make sure that I make this team work well together and I hire the right executives. And then I keep being an expert on our product so that I can define what the strategy of the company is. So I think my job, and I've tried to explain it um, in this Medium post, has changed a ton. But the second thing that I think is more interesting is my job, and just overall my experience at Front, just got harder. And that's the biggest misconception that you know every startup founder can have, which is you're in the early days and you're figure out you're figuring out everything. Like, do I have product market fit? And you know, you have three customers. If you lose one, it's super hard. And then you think that you'll have more people that, you know, have some experience, you'll have more funding, you'll have more customers, you'll have more, like all of this. But, and so you think it's become, uh, it's becoming easier and easier. But the truth is, no, it's harder because everything that's at stake is bigger. And so I would say that that's the thing that has changed the most and that, you know, wasn't expected, but that I embrace. 
Yeah. And same with fundraising. A lot of people think, oh, when I raise my seed round or my series A, I'll be set. We'll have this massive runway and we'll have all this time. And the reality is you you now are on path uh, either – well, you have to pay that money back <laughs> at the end of the day. Like investors invest for a reason. And as you raise more and more money, the stakes get higher. They're going to just introduce more stress for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, at every point in the life of your startup, you need to – let's say you need to, you want to double every year. Then, like literally every year, you need to do better than the sum of all the years before, and so it's pretty tough. And as you know, the numbers get bigger, then it becomes just harder. And what's for sure is there is never a company that will, you know, at a point say, "Oh, you know, I figured things out, so all I need now is just." keep doubling on what's working like that's never the case the truth is you need to keep doing well what you used to be doing well but on top of it you need to have new things that will fuel your growth as you scale yeah actually an example for early product and days we we realized really quickly that press was actually a great acquisition strategy for us which is unusual most like typically press is a terrible <laughs> way to acquire users for most companies but being that we were building for the tech community, getting press in TechCrunch or the Next Web and, and other publications like that was great. It, it built our brand, and and a lot of those people who read TechCrunch were basically our target demographic. And so that worked up until a point, but then then we hit scale, and you know people that read TechCrunch already know Product Hunt, so it's not that we're going to get our next million users, you know, this month by getting more press. And so we had to figure out other ways to to drive growth. It's like this constant, constant process of like experimentation, learning, and it's never ending. But it's part of the fun, <laughs> I think. For sure, 100%. And I, you know, every, every day I wake up and I'm happy to go to work every day. It's not because it's hard that I don't truly enjoy it. Yeah. Are there some products that you use, whether it's apps on your home screen or something you've bought recently that you just love and, and think more people need to know about? Uh, yeah, I would say two of them. One is Headspace. I mean, I don't know if most people know, but I've started meditating two years ago every morning. So I wake up, have a shower, meditate for 10 minutes, go to work, and it's really changed my life. So I would highly encourage it. And then the five-minute journal, you know, I downloaded it after Justin Kahn released a, uh, an article about why he's happier than he's ever been. And part of it was this application where in the morning you can wake up and you can write three things you're grateful for and then three things that you're going to do today to make the day better. I find it super impactful. So these are two apps I would recommend. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Justin Kahn was on the podcast a month or two ago and he recommended that that same app on the podcast. So yeah. it keeps coming up. That's maybe the second or third time I've heard about it. So maybe I should try it Isn't out. Isn't it funny how Justin has changed between when he was a YC partner with us like five years ago and and now that he is the CEO of Atrium and yeah it's been very inspiring to see well it, it just YC in general so we're, we're recording this podcast it's actually a Friday a couple days before demo day so it's changed quite a bit there's like 200 companies I think in our batch we had was it 100 companies Yes. And also they're doing it in San Francisco demo day this year, whereas, you know, the past has been down in Mountain View. So YC itself has, has changed quite a bit and, and expanded and scaled quite a bit also with startup school and, and some other things. So it's, it's really cool to see how they progressed. I agree. Cool. So what's coming up next with Front? Like what's anything you can tease other than the roadmap, which I, I was literally opening up while, while we're on this call. Um, that's really cool uh, that you're keeping that public. Yeah. So it's a tough questions because I feel like Every quarter, we make meaningful changes to the company, either because we have new people 
joining that can really change the company or because we release new product features. But I guess maybe one thing that's going to change is I've always been wanting to innovate in the email space. I'm passionate about it because it's the main tool that people use to get work done. It has not evolved in the past 15 years. It's a very hard space to innovate in. And so when I, when we were in YC together five years ago, we had to find a good wedge to enter the market. And, you know, we use shared inboxes as this wedge. And it was a pretty narrow problem, but, you know, it served us well. And as we grew and as we build the product and as we hire uh, more people working on the messaging um, and the positioning up front, we want to evolve towards, you know, just an inbox, like you use Gmail Outlook, you could use Front Tomorrow. And that's a transition that we really want to happen in, in the coming month. And both from a product standpoint and, and marketing standpoint, we'll work a lot on this. So that's what I'm super excited about for this year. Nice. Nice. And where can they find you online? Frontapp.com. Perfect. Thanks for coming on, Matilda. It's good to, good to uh, well, not see you, but hear you at least. <laughs> We're doing this this remotely uh, this time while I'm in LA. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, even if we're not seeing each other right now, we'll see each other in three days. Yeah, yeah, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.